Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is, of course, the 20th of September, 2021. Now, we've been doing this uh, series of audio lectures as companion to the video, which I started about three days ago. <clears throat> I was going to do a video today, but realized that I could compensate a great deal of um, energy if I put this into an audio lecture today. And that is because most of it is going to be an explanatory discussion rather than one that would require me to be revealing new data, for example, and describing individual research papers, which normally I like to put uh, in the residence of the video lectures. So, and that of course too, would involve me using those splendid pathway diagrams, which you know I really like. In fact, I contribute to making some of them anyway. Um, but nope, that's not gonna be the result of this afternoon. This afternoon, we're going to talk about basic immune responses, and we're going to lead into a rather serious discussion of self-fate. After that, we'll see how far we get. So let's get right to it. When we talk about the innate immune response, we typically talk about a pathogen generating an autoantigen, and that autoantigen can be from the pathogen cell wall, if it has a cell wall, or from membrane, or sometimes just from protein uh, or peptide fragments from that pathogen. An autoantigen that would be generated from the host may have a lot of molecular mimicry associated with those pathogen uh, fragments, acting, of course, as antigens, right? So either an autoantigen or a pathogenic antigen, they have similarity in molecular uh, structure, similar enough that there's a fair amount of autoimmune disease, which, as I reflect on it, um, it occurs more often when the patient has other morbidities that induces not so much a hypo or hyperimmune response that is chronic, but more that the tonicity of that inflammatory response is greatly um, within several orders of magnitude of one range to another. By that, I mean that the spectrum of alteration of the immune response is larger. And because of that, you can have ultra increases in uh, the immune response to an antigen, or you can have a great decrease in the response to it. And either way that this occurs, you're going to have that fluctuation of uh, a, sometimes a hyperimmune response, which can be quite deadly to the system. So typically what happens is you get these molecular fragments and the molecular fragments are ingested into an antigen-presenting cell, um, such as a macrophage, such as a dendritic cell. And then those fragments are ingested into what's called a lysosome. So you have these phagocytic vacuoles and they fuse with the lysosome, which is going to be full of enzymes. They're going to allow you to degrade macromolecular structures. And when that phagocytic vacuole fuses with the lysosome, you get a phagolysosome. Okay. So imagine coming in with an antigen fragment via toll-like receptor signaling, and you turn on 
phagocyte oxidizing enzymes. Now, one of the key features of that is once you generate those, once you generate the activity of those enzymes at the transcriptional translational level, one of the key reducing equivalents in the cell is now rendered important. And that's NADPH. So you oxidize NADPH at the same time you take molecular oxygen and you make uh, slightly reduced forms of that molecular oxygen. We, of course, call those ROS or ROS, reactive oxygen species. Um, and that though they can be removed. There's a bit, many ways, many enzymes that will remove themselves such as superoxide dismutase. Um, but even when you make hydrogen peroxide, from partially reduced forms of highly reactive ROS. Hydrogen peroxide itself can be reacted with myeloperoxidase. And then in conjunction with halide ions like chloride, you can make hypophilus acids. Those can be very dangerous and can cause basically a programmed cell death or necrosis. <clears throat> Another key feature is that toll-like receptor signaling working, for example, through interferon gamma can uh, induce nitric oxide synthase, and that is the INOS form of that enzyme. And that'll take arginine to make citrulline and nitric oxide, which of course is a radical gas. That nitric oxide can actually react with other superoxides, such again as hydrogen peroxide generated from superoxide dismutase, and that will generate peroxynitrite, which is another very potent very uh, tissue-degrading uh, reactive nitrogen species. So you have reactive nitrogen and reactive oxygen species interacting here. <clears throat> so let's go back to discuss this phagocytic uh, vacuole um, fusion with lysosomes. So once you get the phagolysosome, it's going to be carrying out that oxidative degradation I was just talking about. So you get oxidative enzyme transcription. This is really a key feature. And it's increased by uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as interferon gamma. And those can be produced by T lymphocytes in response to an already completely generated inflammatory response because of the innate immune system triggering that. So then you get this TLR, toll-like receptor signaling, and that engages then antipresenting cells like dendritic cells. So what you get as a result of that is a lot of reactive oxygen and what that does in reactive nitrogen, particularly proxynitrite being one of, of some significance, you'll start oxidizing nucleic acids, proteins, and lipids. Now the products of those reactions can then be released into the extracellular space and that will immediately cause, cause necrotosis which is not like apoptosis. Necrotosis is going to induce a full plenum of an uh, inflammatory response. And what the result will be cellular degeneration. This increased inflammatory response will also cause the recruitment of more lymphocyte, and that's going to cause massive local damage. And then you'll get what's known as a cytokine burst. They call that cytokine storm in some popular uh, circles, and you get both tissue and organ uh, degeneration, okay? Now, in the aging human, this pathway can be induced. Remember I was talking about how we can be, we can have quite a large spectrum of hyperimmune versus 
hypoimmune. And that's because the valency of maintaining a tight control over that range from one extreme to the other loses its balance because of all of the molecular structures involved in controlling that signaling response. I call them molecular structures, not just molecules, because mole that molecules isn't, isn't saying enough. Molecular structures like membranes, molecular structures like uh, endosomal compartments. This is the level of regulation all the way down to um, having uh, reactive oxygen species. So you have subcellular structures that are reorganized, sometimes from an autophagic mode to an apoptotic mode or necrototic mode, very rapidly upon an antigen presentation. And remember that epithelial cells and endothelial cells can also contribute to this <coughs> because they indeed will also generate uh, these glycoproteins known as pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines, right? Such as interleukin-2 and interleukin-1-beta, very common proteins synthesized and secreted from host cells, not just lymphocytes and leukocytes. So it's an important feature to understand. And so I'm saying in the aging process, the amplitude of that signal um, becomes far more um, friable. That means that it can be moved around much more rapidly. I get that friable from my old soil science days, right? From my agronomy days. When you have a friable soil, that means it's very, it's easy to granulate. It means that you can grow plants and roots can grow into it very easily. And it's the same kind of thing. When you break down the tight regulation of the immune response, it becomes more friable or that is because that, or another way of looking at it, the regulation becomes more relaxed. It's a looser interaction. And that's not what you want in a tissue bed, particularly someplace that's really significant to maintain tight homeostatic control. Which one comes to mind? Any organ you choose, the heart, the kidney, the liver, the lung, but also keep in mind the central nervous system. And we know that aging results in several CNS disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, prefrontal dementia, Lewy body, all of these de degenerative diseases we've talked about many, many times in authentic biochemistry. And they are devastating because they will destroy uh, selections of nuclei in the central nervous system. And when that happens, the whole homeostatic control, uh, not just in the CNS, but in the periphery, the entire body becomes degraded. And with that degradation, then you also get Unfortunately, the behavioral changes in elderly uh, that are associated with those neurodegenerative diseases, which further amplifies the morbidity uh, and therefore um, enhances a pathogen CNS um, rhythmicity that ultimately leads to death. Because this is a key feature when you've got a great deal of neurodegeneration particularly in the central nervous system. The normal ability to carry out neuroendocrine control over everything from digestion to the regulation of lipoprotein trafficking to 
glycogen metabolism, glycolysis versus fatty acid oxidation in given cell types, and then the entire immune repertoire and the control over that. Remember, we talked a couple of lectures ago about how switching from glycolysis to beta oxidation, at least in macrophages, goes from a, um, it's a polarization phenomenon or event um, that goes from a, a M1 stage macrophages, which are highly uh, pro-inflammatory, to M2, which are basically anti-inflammatory and actually trigger through different T-cell responses. Remember the Th1 versus Th2. We didn't even talk about Treg cells. I did uh, over this last nine months. I talked a lot about Tregs and uh, I also like about CD4 and CD8 positive T cells and the, the naive forms of those regenerating a whole new population of lymphocytes uh, based on be, uh, interactions with cytokines and growth factors and then uh, intracellular transcription factors, right? We're going to get all back into that bed of uncertainty soon enough, tissue bed of uncertainty, cellular um, uh, bed of uncertainty, which which is basically results in a lack of tight control. And so you need plasticity and elasticity in the entire living system all the time. You need to be able to respond. <laughs> First of all, you need to be able to, each cell basically needs to be able to have some level of communication so it can detect changes in the environment that could be potentially detrimental or beneficial Think about, of course, nutritional aspects here, all the way from those cellular interactions, all the way to cellular masses, tissue beds, and then organ systems. All of that has to have a fair amount of elasticity and plasticity because you're a living organism living in a um, complex, uncertain environment, both internal environment and external environment because of stresses and changes in nutrition, right? Because we're heterotrophic organisms, humans are. So all of that is necessary, but when you lose the control over that plasticity and elasticity at the level of gene transcription, um, uh, the translation of messenger RNA, the production of microRNA to control the expression of those uh, messenger RNA, and then the whole plenum of the bioenergetics and potential stress responses in cells whose business it is to control that phenomenon, that all leads then to that higher morbidity framework. And again, a lot of it is unfortunately then um, embedded within behavioral changes in the elderly that make it more and more difficult for them to respond intellectually with good reason to understand what's happening, further degrading um their behavioral responses, and along with that, a degradation of the homeostatic control, which leads then to high level of morbidity and, as I said, finally mortality. So let's get into some detail about what we mean by apoptosis versus necrotosis, because we brought it up a couple of times now, and I've mentioned this before. So remember, these lectures I'm doing here, I'm attempting to make a synoptic of what, 10, almost 11 months of lecture here, because we've been talking about aging this long. So I'm recapping some things, but I'm also inserting new ideas and of course, uh, uh, new papers as they came up in the last year. <clears throat> okay, so apoptosis versus necrotosis. Apoptosis is the canonical program cell death, and we normally consider it executed by 
caspases. These are proteases, okay? However, when PCD, that's programmed cell death, is corrupted, various developmental defects are going to happen. And this can occur at embryonic and at postnatal stages. So we can look at this all the way from conception to the last day of life, okay? Programmed cell death is an important feature for the entire living time, the entire event of time that something is alive, you're going to have apoptosis. This is a necessary component. You have to be able to control cells at the level of destroying them because those cells could potentially become toxic to the whole system. Plus, in terms of differentiation development, apoptosis is absolutely necessary, right? So key feature when apoptosis is disrupted, and this is usually at some molecular level, like a switch, then you can get necrotosis. And this can occur via receptors interacting with protein kinase 1. And that has got a name. That is what it's called, in fact. Receptor interacting protein kinase 1 is known as RIP1. And the kinase, if you add the K, is RIPK1. RIP, of course, you could think about RIP, like rest in peace, right? <clears throat> so you have RIP, RIP1, RIPK1, and RIPK2 and 3. And they're all deployed when you switch from apoptosis to necrotosis. So RIPs are basically serine threonine kinases. Obviously, they're polypeptides. And they interact via what's known as the RIP homotypic interaction motif. And that results in phosphorylation then of both the RIPK1 and then one of the other isoforms, RIPK3. That leads then to a recruitment and activation of the mixed lineage kinase domain, which is the MLKL protein. Once activated, that MLKL will translocate to the plasma membrane and start to degrade it. Loss of that membrane integrity. That during this now nascent stage of necrotosis, is going to result in the release of all the cellular contents, and that's going to give you a full-blown inflammatory response at the innate immune at the innate, innate cell and also at the lymphocytic cell levels pretty quickly. <clears throat> some other factors, some players in this are the FAD-D. That's a FAS-associated death domain. That's an adapter molecule, and it'll interact with cell surface receptors that we've talked about numerous times, tumor necrosis factor receptor and the trail receptor. And that's going to mediate, those are typically FAD, working through the TNFR and trail, are going to mediate apoptosis via the C-terminal death domain. Now, once that C-terminal domain reacts with those receptors, an eruption of its N-terminal effector domain is going to recruit this protein called caspase-8. Okay? It's a cysteine protease. Now, what that's going to do is turn on the canonical cysteine protease cascade-mediated apoptotic uh, mechanism. And it's going to then inhibit RIPK1-dependent necrotosis so that you can ensure, now this is all happening during the very early stages, right after conception, okay, we're talking about humans, this, is, this will then ensure successful embryogenesis. See, all this is happening at the very beginning 
of every single human being, still in utero, still just at the very early stages during embryogenesis. You understand why this is a mechanism that starts at the very beginning and works all the way to the end. <clears throat> so again, you might understand, and not might, you will understand that the corruption level of something as complex as this control over necrotosis and apoptosis is going to be highly complicated, highly feed forward and um, negative feedback regulation monitored via many of the proteins we were talking about just last time, like the semaphorins, right? And, and the um, able proteins and the kinases like AKT and the mTOR, right? All of this mechanism is going to be in play even during the early stages of embryogenesis and then, of course, differentiation. And so that's why I brought that up at the beginning of this uh, final set of uh, lectures to give you the idea that this isn't something that comes on later. It starts at the very beginning of human life, right at conception. Okay? Now, knockout studies in mice have shown that that same thing I just described to you, the control over apoptosis and necrotosis, is absolutely essential during early T cell, that is T lymphocyte development. Okay. So program cell death is required for maintaining homeostasis and at the same time, a suppression of autoimmunity, right? Because this has got to come on really early. It's got to come online really early to control the autoimmune flare-up that will occur constantly whenever any molecular mimicry occur occurs and you get an autoantigen response. And that's why I brought that up at the beginning. Okay? So there is a method to this lecture, I hope you're starting to see. So what I'm telling you is that PCD, program cell death, is required for maintaining homeostasis, which is a large generic term, and then something very specific, a suppression of autoimmune responses. Okay? So you have this extrinsic pathway, and it's triggered by death receptors called DRs, and that includes this FAS, FAS ligand system, the TNFR1, and the FAD adapter. And all that, remember, it's recruiting at caspase 8. And that's the canonical pathway, and that's going to lead to apoptosis. Now, the RIPK1 has long been studied as a mediator of another really potent pro-inflammatory cytokine pathway controlled by NF-kappa-B. So RIPK1 is a mediator of NF-kappa-B activation during pro-survival and indeed a switch to pro and full pro, full on pro-inflammatory signaling. And that then it became evident by studying this RIPK1 in these mouse models initially that RIPK1 also plays an essential role in the alternative death pathway. And now we're calling that necrotosis. That's the one that's going to induce an inflammatory response, unlike apoptosis, which gets cleaned up. And we mentioned this a couple of lectures ago by macrophages, for example, it's particularly M2 macrophages, part of the healing process, right? That M2 macrophages are involved in. That's why Th2 is involved in it too, right? Remember that huge feedback control I talked about <clears throat> through interleukin 4 and interleukin 4 receptor. So this all is happening, especially when apoptosis is compromised 
And this can occur often in any given cell lineage. So when we discovered necrotosis, the next thing that was discovered was ferritosis. That simply means another tissue degenerative pathway, but that one requiring iron, right? Hence ferritosis. And so necrotosis and ferritosis are both alternate forms of programmed cell death. And basically they result in, in still a regulated, but unfortunate necrotic form of cell death. And it's going to be an important contributing factor, a positive contributing factor in tumor suppression. But it's also going to be a contributing factor for the negative components of neurodegeneration and the ischemia reperfusion tissue injury pathways that we've also talked about a great deal. So remember that whole system now, because I'm going to get into some detail. So in the brain, a succession of blood flow followed by reoxygenation, that's known as ischemia reperfusion, or IR, capital IR. Now that in itself will induce, like after a stroke, for example, will induce a complex cascade of events involving an energy, bioenergetic, that is, failure. And, an alter, and that's going to be the result of, and then further exacerbate, uh, a dysregulation of ionic homeostasis across the membrane. That's going to result in an excessive release in the central nervous system of neurotransmitters, particularly glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, and that's going to end up now in the extracellular space, right? And we talked about the excitotoxicity a couple of lectures ago. I'm thinking now about four or five lectures ago. I hope you remember them. I know that you do. And you can always play them back, right? The great thing about recordings. See, the lectures that I used to give live, which, uh, as I said, I would be love to do again. I would love to be able to recapitulate some of that because I love giving live lectures because they're more spontaneous. Um, the, in the early days, people didn't record them. They just took notes, which is how I went to graduate school. Later on, people start bringing in these big recorders. And then later on after that, people brought in, yeah, right, cell phones, right? And at the very early stages of recording lectures, as a professor, they would ask you, um, is it okay for us to record you? And I would always say, yeah, I don't care. That's fine. But what I'm told is a lot of professors didn't like that. And I think, though, still what happened, there was a lot of, shall we say, uh, shall we say, a cult covert recording of lectures. Now, I don't know if those professors didn't want to be recorded because they were afraid they'd make a mistake. Maybe just they didn't want to be recorded because they figured that it was uh, taking away some of their academic freedom. I don't know. Nowadays, though, I think that every lecture gets recorded. So recording this here without having me in front of you lecturing probably isn't that disparate from what goes on in college classrooms anyways. <clears throat> but I'm just mentioning to you that because it's recorded, you can go back and listen to all this stuff, which I know you will. Now, here's a dialectical proposition I want to get involved in here. Let's talk about the link between interferons and the inflammasome. And let's talk about the, the, the interferon inflammasome damage in various disease states and ask whether or not there is a link to actual native infection and then sequelae disease 
pathology. Now, why am I bringing this up? Again, this is a lecture, believe it or not, about aging. So you get an infection sometime, oh, say, earlier in your life, <clears throat> maybe like two weeks ago, and you you recover from that infection, you recover from whatever it happened to be, and you feel fine again. You don't feel ill because the illness is really caused by uh, you know, pro-inflammatory cytokines. Oh, and of course, eicosanoids uh, generated from the Cox, Locks, and P450 pathways, which we talked about recently. But you know that that recovery leaves behind a mark. What kind of mark? An immune system mark, or I will even say remark because it's going to recur. So you make memory cells, T memory cells and B memory cells from almost any kind of serious infection. Serious, maybe you didn't even feel that sick, but serious to the system enough to engage that complete repertoire of immune response. So that is, so yeah, I'm sure you understand that. Now imagine over the years, how much vagary of damage occurs from all the infections you incur that come and go quickly. You may not even notice it. You might get the sniffles. You might feel a slight fever. You might have some cough or something like that. But you recover from it without even thinking about it. You go right to work. You go right back to what you're doing. In fact, you don't skip a beat. But all of those vagaries and all those disease states that you went through, those micro infections, if you want to call them that micro meaning small relative temporally to the lifespan, they will accrue a larger and larger population of memory cells, T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes specifically I'm thinking about here, which are going to be engaged when the antigen that initially caused those memory cells to be generated are the T cell, B cell population or the plasma cell population for, uh, for those B cells that are uh, antibody producing. Understand that those cells are aging and even though there's some division going on, when they divide, remember the whole telomere discussion in decreasing, decreasing, decreasing the telomere because tel 